our scripture reading for this morning is Romans 9, 1 through 29. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we, should we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thank you, Caitlin. It's not often we have to go through a whole chapter, so I appreciate you reading that whole thing. Uh, but what a good morning we've had already. Uh, I feel like I should almost be wrapping up my sermon 
at this point, but stick with us. Um, but man, it's so good to hear from the, the Munstermans, and, and I know that you guys haven't got to know them super well because of COVID. Uh, we were hoping that this would be a season for them where they just got to know you all deeply and you got to know them deeply. Uh, I have because they've been in our city group, which has been a huge blessing, and also Nate and I meet up a lot, so um, grateful for what you're doing and sad that this is your last announcement before you leave next month, but we have really enjoyed you here with us, and we'll be praying for you and love you. Uh, also, what an incredible worship time this morning. I was just sitting there, and I am so very grateful for the people that we have that have the giftings that they have, that they use it for God's glory and our enjoyment at the same time, too, right? Thank you guys so much. So, um, unfortunately, uh, we're a little bit behind this morning, and it's me preaching instead of Nate, so you're not going to get a shorter sermon. Um, if Nate was preaching, he'd be like, oh, yeah, I can, I can figure that out. I'll, I'll wing it, and uh, you're just going to get a longer sermon. But have you ever wished that you could take someone's place who was sick? Like if you knew somebody who was, uh, had cancer or a serious illness, and you think, well, why, God, why them? Like, why don't you put that on me? You know, as a parent, I think when you have children, anytime they get sick or injured, you kind of will that on yourself. They feel like, I wish I could go through that instead of them. I, I don't want them to have to endure that. I remember one time when Emmett was about one years old. I know he was old enough that he could walk, uh, but we had a rule, like we had to keep the bathroom door closed because Emmett liked to play in the toilet. So I hear this blood-curling scream one morning, and I walk out, and Weston is walking out, and he's going, Dad, I took care of it. I shut the bathroom door, and I, I continue running past Weston, and poor Emmett has his pinky finger stuck in the door jam with the door all the way closed, and he's just screaming. And I open it, and he pulls it out, and the thing looked like it was a letter of the alphabet. Uh, it was just going in all different directions. And, of course, Weston was doing us a favor by locking the, closing the door so he didn't get in the toilet, but I'm thinking... My poor son Emmett is never going to be able to throw a football correctly. And uh, I don't know if he'd ever want to throw a football, but I want him to have that option. And I'm like, God, I'm, I'm old. I can't throw the football well anymore anyways. Like, why don't you give this to me and take this off, Emmett? Um, just so you know, uh, when they're one years old, apparently they're made of rubber, and he just bounced back in a couple days, and he's good to go. And he can throw a football. Now, if it was the flu or something, maybe I wouldn't take that from my kids. Like, let them endure that themselves. Uh, but, but pain, bring that upon myself. If you're a parent here, you can probably relate to that, where you want to take on somebody else's pain or somebody else's sickness. But what if it's someone who's not an immediate family member? What if it's someone you, you hardly know? What if it was something that it was a, not even a sickness or an injury, but was salvation, would you be willing to give up all of your rights in the gospel so that someone else could be saved? That's a lot harder question, isn't it? I would struggle with that. But what we see Paul doing here is that he is willing to do that. He's willing to give up his blessings in the gospel so that others could have it. Paul changes gears a little bit in the middle of Romans, and this morning we're focusing on God's 
sovereignty. I know it's not a very deep topic. We were on a family camping trip this week, and I'm like, oh yeah, there's no problem. I'll just write a sermon on God's sovereignty in the middle of like archery and um, swimming and all this other stuff. No, no problem whatsoever. Uh, so we're going to be talking about sovereignty, but this is something we're actually going to be camping out in for the next few weeks because Paul, Paul takes a break in Romans, and it almost seems like this different book that has slid right in the middle of what he's talking about here. But before he does that, he begins with his deep love for his fellow countrymen. Look at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul begins by this, and he's making such a radical statement that he's, he begins by, hey, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. Like, he has to see that twice, because what he's saying is really kind of unbelievable that everything that we've seen in Romans 1 through 8, all these blessings that come from the gospel, that Paul is willing to just throw aside because his love for his kinsmen is so great that he would be willing to take upon the curses in order that other people could experience the blessings in Jesus Christ. I mean, no wonder he repeats himself twice in that beginning. It's really quite unbelievable. But you might ask yourself, like, why is Israel cut off in the first place? Like, why is, is Paul even having to have this dilemma of will, be willing to replace himself so that others could know the gospel? I mean, wasn't Israel God's chosen people, his, his, his special people, his holy nation, like why would they be cut off from the gospel to begin with? And that's the question at hand this morning. If God called Israel to be a special people, why are some Israelites not going to make it into the kingdom? And coming out of last week's sermon, or two weeks ago, uh, chapter 8 and verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if God called Israel, why are some not justified? Is God's word untrue? Is God unjust? Does he have the right to call some but not call others? And Paul answers all of this in this passage this morning, but let me go ahead and give you the answer on the front end. The answer that Paul says here is that, that God is sovereign. That God has supreme authority and that everything is under his control, even salvation. This is a difficult topic this morning, and I want to admit it right off the front. Uh, you know, this is a topic that has caused many arguments within the church. Uh, it has caused people to, to even separate and fight over this, but I have a lot more hope for us this morning and a lot more hope for us in these next few weeks. But let me affirm to you that this is a difficult subject. I'm not going to roll through this and just think that this is going to be easy for you to understand because there is a lot of mystery in what we're talking about today. A lot of mystery. When I was four years old, I was a brilliant child. My mother would agree with that. And she has it recorded in my baby book that I had instructions on how to make a radio. 
Now, a four-year-old should not know how to make a radio, but I gave her all these instructions of, of taking this box and, and the knobs that you were supposed to use and, and make round and how you're to, to paint it and exactly how to make this. And I remember that the last instructions in this were that you just take a sharp thumb and you press it down and then you make it work somehow. I mean, that's, that's how to make a radio. I have no idea what's on the inside. All I could figure out is, like, I can make a box look like a radio, but how it's actually going to play music or anything else, I have no idea. In a topic like this, I feel like that's how I'm approaching this. Like, I feel like I, I see God's sovereignty and election in, in Scripture, but when I get down to the end of it, I say, somehow God just presses it down with a sharp thumb and makes it work somehow. I really don't know how it works. So there's some mystery in this, and, and that's, that's okay. But what I know is that it's biblical. And Paul clearly expresses that here. So I'm going to walk us through this slowly. But look how Paul addresses some of the questions on this topic. Question number one. If God called Israel, but many in Israel have not been saved, has God's word failed? Look at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See, so what you have here is you have even before Christ, there were some in Israel who were not considered Israel. Paul is saying that it's not the children of the flesh, those who were born into the family of Israel, that are actually Israel. It is those who are called by the promise. Those, um, the children of the promise, are counted as offspring. So Paul just got done saying here how God has chosen Israel. He called them out of all the other nations to be his holy nations, and they received all these blessings as God's people, a holy nation, adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, and the worship. And it seems like they have a leg up on all the other nations, doesn't it? I mean, they're called into something special. They have this intimate relationship with God. They have a leg up on all of the other nations. But then under the same breath, Paul utters that some even though by birth are Israel, are not really Israel. Look at verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time's next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I want to just stop right there for a second, and this is not the normal use of hatred that we use in the English language. What, what this is really just expressing is that 
uh, Esau was loved a lot less, and Jacob was loved a lot more. There's special emphasis on the way that God loved Jacob. But what I really want to draw out here is this. What Paul is saying is that this isn't some kind of new teaching in the Bible. This isn't something that he's just making up and, and following along. He's, he's going back in the Bible, all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis. And if you've read Genesis, you know that, that God calls Abraham, and he tells Abraham that he's going to make his special people, that, that he's going to have so many descendants that it's going to be as many as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. He's going to have this tremendous blessing, and that through him all of the nations of the world would be blessed. So Abraham, and is in his old age and kind of doubts that this actually is going to happen, he has two kids, and he has Ishmael, who is not chosen, by the way, and he has Isaac, who is chosen, and, and through Isaac that this seed would continue. It would be God's special people. And then the story that is actually talking about here that Paul is referencing is that Isaac has two sons, twins at that, Isaac, or, uh, Jacob and Esau. And I think this is one of the best reasons that we have to, to understand God's sovereignty and, and election. Because Paul says that before Jacob and Esau were even born, before they had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. See, you have Esau. He was the firstborn. He was the one that was supposed to get all the, the blessings. He was the one that, that Isaac truly loved and wanted to extend that blessing down to him. So, so why not Esau? Well, it was because God loved Jacob. Not because God foresaw who they would become, but before they were born, God loved Jacob and chose him, but not Esau. If you were to look at Jacob's life, you'd begin reading, and you would probably question why God would love Jacob and choose Jacob. I mean, he had Esau that was already their firstborn, and Esau was a man's man, right? Um, just this hairy guy, like I picture a good, good beard on, on Esau, and he hunts wild game, and uh, he works the fields, and Jacob, Jacob's a mama's boy. You know, he's got smooth skin, he doesn't work the fields, he doesn't hunt wild game, he just stays at home with mommy. That's really how Jacob's life begins and how the Bible describes him. And then Jacob does some, some really atrocious things. Uh, first of all, Jake, uh, Esau comes in from work one day and he is starving. And, and Jacob bribes him into selling his birthright so that he would actually give him food. I mean, what a brotherly thing to do, right? I mean, your brother's hungry, give him food. But no, he tricks him and he bribes him into selling him his birthright. And then later on, when, when uh, Isaac is, is really old in age and his eyesight is getting bad, Jacob comes in and he, he dresses, he, put, he puts hair on his arms, and he pretends like he's Esau so that he takes the blessing that the firstborn was supposed to get. A real stand-up guy. But yet, God loved Jacob. God loved Jacob. God chooses Jacob. And if you follow the story, Jacob becomes Israel. It's a name that they give him because all 12 tribes of Israel come from his seed. God loved 
Jacob. If you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, have you ever just pondered like why God would actually love you? I know I've questioned that many times in my life. Because we know that like God sees everything. God knows who we truly are. God, God sees all the sin in your life that you have tried really hard to hide from other people. God knows everything about you. He knows all your shortcomings. He knows the way you try to push yourself ahead of other people and put other people down. Like God knows everything, and yet God still loves you. That's really a good question to ask. Why does God love me? I mean, why doesn't he love this person over here? I mean, he hasn't chosen this person, and this person seems to be better than me. They're smarter than me. They're better looking than me. They're, they're more loving than I am. Like, why not choose them? Why choose me, God? Many years ago, I, I heard this conference speaker who brought up a good friend of his, and I know he was picking on him because he knew him well, and he knew he had a strong marriage, and he brings him up on stage, and he starts asking him questions about his marriage, and he says, do you love your wife? And this guy just like boils over, and, and he says all this stuff about how he loves his wife, and then the speaker asks him, he says, why do you love your wife? He says, well, I love my wife uh, because she's attractive, She's smart, she's creative, and then the speaker cuts him off right there. He could have gone on, but he cuts him off right there. He said, so you're telling me that those are the reasons you love your wife, but what if I told you that I know this other girl, and she is way more attractive than your wife. I mean, your wife is attractive. She's like an eight, but this girl is a knockout. She's a 10, right? She's, she's gorgeous, and boy, is she smart. Man, she is... One of the smartest women I know. She makes your wife look like a third grader. You think your wife is smart? No, she's not smarter than a third grader. That's your wife compared to this one. And, oh, her creativity. I mean, she puts Martha Stewart to shame. So if I have this girl for you, and these are the reasons you love your wife, if I introduce you to this girl, will you therefore then take this love that you have for your wife and transfer it to this other woman? And, of course, the guy says, no, I, I love my wife. Sometimes love is a difficult thing to explain and describe, isn't it? Love is a difficult thing to grasp. But here you have God simply loved Jacob. Why is Jacob chosen? Because God loved Jacob. We've seen so far in Romans just how deep our sin goes. And God knows our inner thoughts, all of our sin, even the ones we desperately try to hide. So why does God love me? I can tell you, I, I don't know. I don't know why God loves me. I don't know why God loves you. Certainly there are people who are more moral than we are, better at their jobs, stronger, but somehow God still loves me. Paul has been teaching all along that we are saved by grace alone and not by works, and this idea that God chooses us not by our good works, but only because of his grace, only adds to this idea and I think strengthens 
this idea. It just lines up really well with the fact that we are saved by grace alone. It's not anything that we could do. It's not that we're better or wiser or more humble than other people. It is just simply by God's grace. Is God being unbiblical by choosing some of Israel and not others? By no means. That is what he's always done. He loved Jacob, but not Esau. He chooses Jacob, but not Esau. So God's sovereignty and election is biblical, but is it just? Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I know we have several Office fans in here, and uh, the whole series is often cringeworthy and uncomfortable uh, because of Michael Scott, but probably the most cringeworthy and uncomfortable scene is Scott's Tots. You know what I'm talking about? So Michael Scott, 10 years earlier, had gone and spoken at a third grade classroom that was in the inner city. And he sees all these kids and he wants to give them hope. So he says, if you graduate from high school, I will pay your college tuition. And so they buckle down and they get excited and they make shirts and they celebrate. And for like 10 years, they idolize Michael Scott because he is the guy who has given them hope and is going to send them to college. Well, guess what? Fast forward, all of these kids are graduating. And they invite Michael Scott back in to celebrate with them and like pass this tuition on to them. And uh, only Michael doesn't have that money. And he says, you know, but when I was 30, I thought by the time I'd be 40, I'd be a millionaire. Uh, and then I realized that when I turned 40, I actually have less money than when I was 30. <laughs> So he has to go in and tell this whole class who had idolized him for 10 years that they're not getting their college paid for. And one of the funniest lines, he says, I've made some empty promises in my life, but hands down, that was the most generous. <laughs> All right, I know that example is kind of funny, but let's pretend like there really is a millionaire that is not Michael Scott. And this millionaire goes into the school in this inner city and offers this tuition for a whole classroom. There's 25 kids in this classroom. Now, there's 500 kids in this whole school. Would you call this person unjust because they only offer this tuition up to 25 people and not all 500? Well, the answer would be, of, of course not. No, you would, you would see that as still being extremely generous. That that person wasn't obligated to give that tuition to anybody else. Just out of their generosity of their own heart, they are willing to pay for the tuition of 25 students. So what we've seen in Romans so far is that none of us deserve that tuition, right? Because of our sin, that, that no one deserves salvation. So the fact that anyone receives salvation at all from God is a tremendous gift of generosity. We can't look at it and say, oh, God isn't just. He's not offering it to everybody. The fact that he's offering it to anybody, when we, we know we are so lost and so separated and so sinful apart from God that it is a miracle in itself that he offers it to anybody. 
God will have mercy on whom he chooses and compassion on those whom he chooses. So God's sovereignty and election, Paul has just shown that it is biblical and is just. But question number three, does God have the right to choose some and not others? Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Then I like how Eugene Peterson writes out the rest of this chapter. He says, Who in the world do you think you are to second-guess God? Do you for a moment suppose any of us knows enough to call God into question? Clay doesn't talk back to the fingers that mold it, saying, Why did you shape me like this? Isn't it obvious that a potter has a perfect right to shape one lump of clay into a vase for holding flowers and another into a pot for cooking beans? I love that analogy. If God needs one style of pottery, especially designed to show his angry displeasure, and another style carefully crafted to show his glorious goodness, isn't that all right? Why does God choose some and not others? Once again, I don't know. I don't know. But what Paul says here. It's, fr it's frankly, like, don't worry about it. He's the potter, and we're just the clay. Let him do what only God can do. He's sovereign, and we are not. And God has the right to elect whomever he chooses. Tim Keller says, in election, God comes in, softens our hearts, and makes us good. In hardening, God simply passes over and lets people have the way that they have chosen. In either one of these, God's glory is shown. Could God have chosen everyone and still received glory? I think he probably could have done that. But for some strange reason, God decides that the best way for him to be glorified is by passing over some and electing others. still chooses some. That's mind-boggling. I want to start wrapping up here, but this needs to be said again. It's, it's okay to struggle with this. I've struggled with this for a large part of my life. This is, is a difficult teaching, and there's a lot of, of mystery in here, and we don't understand God's heart completely and why he, he does this and why he doesn't do things differently. It's okay if you disagree. If you want to chat about it afterwards, I'll, I'll welcome myself. And we're going to continue talking about this for the next few weeks. So if you want to hear more and you have questions, please come back again. But if you are someone who struggles to wrap your mind around God's sovereignty and election, here are some things that might help. Uh, two of these are going to come from uh, a book that was really helpful in my time of life, it was by J.I. Packer. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And Packer talks about this from, from the lens of prayer. And he says that many times we don't even realize that we believe in God's sovereignty and election, but then by the way we live our lives, it shows that somehow deep down inside that we actually do believe that. And he says there's two ways in our prayer life 
that show this. And he says that the first one is that if you've ever prayed and thanked God for your own salvation, if you've ever prayed God, to God and said, God, thank you for saving me, you, you probably believe in the sovereignty of God. Why else would you pray that? Well, because perhaps in your heart of hearts you know that only God saves. And it's not that you are smarter than others or better than others. It's that God has saved you and you have no explanation, only gratitude. God, thank you for saving me. And then second, if you've ever prayed for the conversion of others. Have you ever done that? I, I, I know that we do that. I, I've heard many of you pray for the salvation of others. I do that often myself. And Packer says, do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently from him? I do not think you do. I think that what you do is to pray in categorical terms that God will quite simply and decisively save them, that he will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hard hearts, renew their natures, and move their wills to receive the Savior. You know that it is God who saves men. You know that what makes men turn to God is God's own gracious work in drawing them to himself, and the content of your prayers is determined by that knowledge. I think those are some helpful examples from Packer, but let me give you a couple more. Third, although uh, the doctrine of God's sovereignty and election are, are difficult, I think that, that the other alternatives are even more difficult. For one, without election, you compromise a major theme of all of Scripture. Everything that we've been learning in Romans so, more, uh, so far is, is compromised. And that is that we are saved by grace alone, that we are saved by faith alone, that we are saved in Jesus alone. If you believe that the difference between you and an unbeliever are simply that you are more humble or wise or you are more open, then in essence what you are saying is that salvation is all you and not from God. You are the author of your own salvation. And finally, God's sovereignty and election show us that it is all grace. And this is one of my favorite parts about this because we don't often think of God's election and sovereignty as being more grace, but what we see in this is that from beginning to end, it is all grace. If, if it's not our works and God's grace, it's not our works and it's God's grace. Dr. James Kennedy tells this story. He says, here are five people who are planning on holding up a bank. They are friends of mine. I find out about it, and I plead with them. I beg them not to do it. Finally, they push me out of the way, and they start out. I tackle one of the men and wrestle him to the ground. The others go ahead, rob the bank. A guard is killed, and they are captured, convicted, sentenced. The one man who was not involved in the robbery goes free. Now I ask you this question. Whose fault was it that the other men died? Now this other man, who was walking around free, can he say, because my heart is so good, I am a free man? The only reason that he is free is because of me, because I restrained him. So those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus we see that salvation is all grace from its beginning to its end.
God chooses to give his undeserved mercy to whomever he pleases. If you're a recipient of that grace, praise God. But just know that it's not because you're any better than anyone else. It's not that you're, you're more wise or more humble. It is because there's mystery in it. It is because there is mystery in God's grace. But also, we don't know who received this grace, so we carry it around with us for others. We are still responsible to preach that grace. Nate is going to hit more on that next week. We are still responsible. I think one of the errors that we make as Christians is we often oversimplify the Bible and don't allow things beyond our comprehension. But let me tell you, there's a lot of mystery in the Bible. Great mystery. If I can describe everything perfectly about God, then God really isn't God at all, is he? There is great mystery in the Bible. And a lot of things that this side of heaven, we will never be able to fully wrap our minds around. And one of those is God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Church, allow there to be an existence of mystery. Allow there to be an existence of mystery. And let God be wiser than us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your truth. And I know this middle section of Romans is different and difficult to tread through. But God, we ask that you extend us more grace as we wrestle through this. Why you choose us and why you love us is, is beyond comprehension, but we are so grateful that you love us. God, thank you for extending your love to us, especially through your son, Jesus Christ, who took on our sins so that we might live and be free. God, we love you. Help us to love you even more. We pray this in your name. Amen.